Hello and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and in today's episode, I interview Dr. Beth Beadle, who is the Director of Head and Neck Radiation Oncology at Stanford and co-creator of the Radiation Planning Assistant, a fully automated AI-powered treatment planning assistant. I had a great time talking to Dr. Beadle. She is very wise and has a great sense of humor. I also find her inspiring because in the Radiation Planning Assistant, she has found a way to combine her passion in patient care, technology, and travel to make Radonc accessible for more people worldwide, especially in the places that need it most. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Thank you. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Mammal Podcast. Thank you very much, Dr. Beadle, for coming on our show today. Uh, our first question, which we ask every guest, is Can you tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Yes, well, thank you for having me and thank you for the invitation. Um, so, I came to medicine through an interest in cancer. All of my family members almost have cancer. So, it was something I was very familiar with as a caregiver and as a family member as a child. Um, so, when I started studying in college and graduate school and medical school, I always was interested in marrying my interest in cancer care with also my interest in technology. So I worked through um, my studies sort of on lily pads of physics. So I studied physical chemistry and then biophysics. And then when I started looking for specialties, radiation oncology was a way to marry my interests in um, cancer care and patient care and also in technology. And just like a lot of things in this world right now, um, one amazing integration of technology into clinical practice is the use of machine learning. So even compared to when I started um, several years ago uh, as a resident and then as faculty, we are more and more um, aided by computer technology and specifically the the advances in machine learning have just really um, revolutionized our clinical practice and I think what it has to offer is just beginning. So, so it's one of the ways that I think we can make clinical care better um, and, and get um, high quality radiation therapy to cancer patients more efficiently and, um, and impact them more widely in areas of the world that currently are underserved in terms of, of cancer treatment. So I've noticed in you know, telling a lot of people, I guess I should tell the listeners that I'm also planning on going into radiation oncology. And I'd say the average layperson doesn't know much about the specialty. Um, I think a lot of people think that I'm going into radiology. <laughs> I have to yes. kind of t- tell them, oh, actually, it's a little different. I was wondering yes, if you your could... patients will call you a radiologist, too, and your family <laughs> members probably will in the future, too. So uh, I was wondering if you could give uh, our listeners like a brief overview uh, of what radiation oncology sure. is and, and why it's particularly uh, well-suited for AI applications? Of course. So radiation oncology actually used to be a subspecialty of radiology. So radiology uses imaging techniques to document what is going on in a patient through the use of different um, technologies like X-ray, MRI, CT scans, um, all of those things look at patients and try to identify abnormalities that um, are in conjunction with physical examination. So they're diagnostic um, for for the most part. Um, Radiation oncology uses radiation mostly through um, uh, X-ray or electromagnetic radiation to treat patients 
mostly with cancer and try to eliminate their disease. Um, so it's therapeutic. It is a treatment for cancer. It's also a treatment for some benign diseases. So radiation oncologists study physics and they study biology and they study clinical um, care in order to provide radiation therapy for patients. Um, I particularly have an interest in a specialty in head and neck cancer. So I treat patients with head and neck cancer, but cancers of the breast, of the lung, of the cervix, of the pancreas, um, of the brain are all treatable with radiation therapy in conjunction with surgery and chemotherapy. So it's a great field where we use this technology in order to treat patients to try to eradicate their cancers and minimize the dose to normal tissues and their long-term side effects. So it's come a long way in the last decade and um, even more so in the last two decades as our ability to control computer technology, com um, plan the treatment and deliver treatment has allowed us to improve our clinical cure rates, but also minimize the long-term side effects. So it's a great field but it usually happens in a basement of a hospital and most people aren't aware of it unless they have a connection either with a patient um, or with a provider, someone in the family who knows about radiation. So it's a, it's a small field. Was that how you were introduced to it? Yeah, when I was um, a child, my grandfather received um, radiation therapy. So I distinctly remember um, having uh, sitting in the waiting room while that was happening. And then my father was diagnosed with cancer when I was a senior in high school, my mother when I started um, my first faculty position. So it, it's something I've been with in one way or shape or form for a long time. Mm. What, how has radiation oncology changed from the era of, you know, maybe when you were a child, maybe to its present day. And um, I guess this is kind of foreshadowing further questions, yeah. but you know, in general, what was it like back then? So really it started clinically. So, um, so for almost a hundred years ago, there was a publication about treating cancers of the mouth and throat with radiation where effectively they had a radioactive source, typically cobalt, um, and they would put it in uh, a machine and sort of aim it generally at a patient's tumor. And what they saw is that the tumor went away, but the tissues nearby got a lot of side effects. Hair fell out, the skin got red, the inside of the mouth um, got raw and ulcerated, but the cancer went away. So clearly the um, exposure to radiation killed cells, but it killed normal tissue and it killed the cancer cells. Um, when we started getting the opportunity to image patients with CT scans, largely in the eighties, what we could then do is identify where a cancer was so that we could better um, shape these beams. Um, and so we did that, but we still did very large fields where the tumor was in a field of radiation and we could identify based on bony landmarks or other anatomy where things were, but still got a lot of normal tissue in there. So if you see patients who were treated for with radiation in the 80s and 90s, oftentimes they have a lot of side effects of that treatment um, because we could see the cancer, but we still couldn't arrange um, to treat only the cancer or minimize the dose to other places starting in the 90s and then really becoming um, much more widespread starting in the year 2000 when it was approved for use, 
We now use technologies where the computer can control the way the beam is modulated as it comes around a patient in a technique called intensity modulated radiation therapy, where really we can try to deliver high dose to the tumor targets and the at-risk areas and try to shape the beam um, through the use of this computer controlled modulation to minimize the dose to the other tissues. So for cancers of the head and neck, I can try to avoid the salivary glands and the voice box and the eyes and the brain to try to minimize um, those side effects, both in the short term and more important in the long term. So really the crucial point for all of that was improvements in imaging, which are largely based on technology and computer control. And then um, the, the improvements in the ability to shape the beam that comes out of a machine, which is now called a linear accelerator. So we no longer typically use radioactive implants or radioactive sources, although they're still used in, in, um, in finite um, uh, patient care um, uh, scenarios where they're appropriate, but most patients are treated from a large machine where a beam is accelerated under computer control and then it's shaped as it comes out in order to provide dose to the target and minimize the normal tissues. So really the side effects used to be very, very significant for patients undergoing radiation. They are now um, much lower than that, which again allows us to cure cancer with fewer long-term side effects than we'd seen even five or 10 years ago. I feel like this is a great time to ask about the radiation planning assistant. And uh, I was wondering, you know, could you tell us about that? How, uh, what's the story behind it? How did it start out? Um, what's it used for? Sure. So um, I really like to use technology in order to solve problems that we face every day in the clinic and that, that our patients face. And I think sometimes um, technology creates cool toys that don't necessarily impact people or, um, or physicians or patients directly. Um, so I have a, a, a physics colleague, so radiation oncologists work very closely with radiation physicists. And uh, his name is Lawrence Court and he's at MD Anderson and he's in charge of big ideas. And I'm uh, sort of in charge of, of practicalities, logistics, and and clinical care. And so we worked together at MD Anderson and started thinking about how we could use some of this computer technology to try to allow um, our experience and uh, in treating patients to be utilized throughout the world. So despite the improvements in radiation oncology and radiation techniques in the United States um, and in other high-income countries, um, the low and middle income countries in this world, such as multiple countries in Africa and Asia, do not have the, um, the availability of radiation um, treatment. A lot of countries don't have a single radiation machine. And for even for those that have a radiation machine, the advanced technologies take a lot of effort and a lot of knowledge to put into place. And so if they have a three month waiting list for patients to start therapy, they just simply do not have the ability to go through and do the um, advanced technologies that take a lot more resources in order to quality assure and create those treatment plans. So Lawrence and I thought that perhaps we could use a machine learning um, automated system in order to try to help um, make this process more efficient, both in our own clinics and more importantly in clinics that just don't have the resources to move patients through and create these types of plans. 
So the radiation planning assistant was our idea for that. And so what we envision is a system where a patient can be seen anywhere in the world, be diagnosed with a cancer, have their planning CT scan, which is the necessary step for um, radiation therapy so we can design the fields, uploaded to a cloud-based server. And with a single button click, um, the physician can decide what needs to be treated, what dose and what areas need to be treated when they upload the CT scan. And um, within 30 minutes, they can then download from that system um, the fully contoured plan, which delineates the targets and the normal tissues and the treatment plan so that they could safely deliver radiation therapy to that patient. Now, all of those pieces are editable. So again, we don't want to um, dictate to a local physician what they're gonna need to treat. Ultimately, whatever the computer says, it's between a patient and their physician, what gets actually done. But that said, having a one-step um, efficient process could significantly improve the quality of care, allow increased um, integration of advanced technologies and more advanced treatment plans, and help with efficiency and patient throughput in order to try to get them. So that's where that idea was born. Mm, um, so taking a step back, just because I, I know that even for me as a student entering radiation oncology, it was a little hard to grasp the, the pipeline or the, you know, the kind of workflow. Mm -hmm. And uh, for our listeners, uh, I was wondering if you could talk briefly about what life was like before the radiation planning system, you know, kind of the, the workflow from getting the initial diagnosis and kind of what would a, a physician or a radiation oncologist have to do and how much time would it take? Um, so for most cases, a patient is diagnosed usually in a multidisciplinary setting. So they usually will see a surgeon, a medical oncologist who will give opinions about chemotherapy and a radiation oncologist who will give opinions about radiation and will determine based on physical examination, the type of cancer and the patient and the patient's health, where we're going in terms of cancer care. And if that involves radiation, we then have to plan the radiation. So radiation has to be based on the specific patient's anatomy, location of the tumor and the normal tissues. So the way we typically do that is we bring a patient once we determine that we're going to do radiation into our department um, and we immobilize them so that we can deliver radiation routinely into the same position and the patient in the same orientation. So they're typically lined up on a CT scanner that we have in the department and specific um, devices are made to keep them in that position. So if it's a pelvis or a leg treatment, that can be a cradle um, or a, a um, a pillow for the knees and the legs. If it's in the chest or upper arm breast area, that can be what we call a wing board um, to keep the arms above the head. And for head and neck and brain cancers, it typically is um, a thermoplastic mask that um, actually is sent to the, um, is limited to the um, head and neck area in order to try to keep them in that same reproducible position. In that position, we do a CT scan and that gets the patient's anatomy into the computer. And then typically before the radiation planning assistant, um, one of the physicians, either a resident or ultimately the faculty um, will go through and outline where the tumor is, 
where we want to deliver radiation dose, so to the tumor and the places it could go next, um, and then all of the critical structures that we want to protect. So for the head and neck, that does include the brain and the eyes and the salivary glands, inner ear, voice box, those kind of things. So that's the first really kind of step in that. Um, and then we send that, um, that set of contours into to our physics team and our dosimetry team, which works closely with physics. And they help to run the computer algorithms in order to determine how to deliver dose using the advanced technologies of IMRT to the tumor while minimizing the dose to the other areas. After they create a plan, the physician then reviews the plan to determine whether or not it's acceptable in terms of those trade-offs. Ultimately, I would love to have only the tumor treated and no dose to the other areas, but that's not physically possible. So I have to weigh what acceptable doses are to the normal tissues, what I can compromise on in terms of normal tissues or coverage of the tumor. And that often goes through multiple iterations. And then when, that, it, when we reach a consensus that it's an acceptable plan, that's approved then goes back to our physicists for a quality assurance plan where it's double checked using a different system. It's checked on the machine and then a patient starts that process. So there are a lot of individual steps um, that are manual, depending on the physician and the complexity of the case, the contouring process for the physician, which the RPA does on its own, often takes several hours, between two to four hours, depending on the extent of the case and the experience of the um, physician. And then the planning process itself often takes several hours to days, depending on, again, the extent of the tumor, the complexity of it, the server speed, um, and the knowledge and experience of the physicist or treatment planner. So our hope with the RPA is it takes all of those handoffs, which are significant risks for, um, for delays, um, and also all of those multi-hour steps and makes it into a, uh, a process that can happen without uterus or intervention in ideally about 30 minutes. Wow, that's incredible. It's, it would make things a lot easier. Um, our hope is that it makes them a lot safer too, because every opportunity for a handoff between different um, groups in a hospital is an opportunity for something to get miscommunicated or delayed. So our hope is that um, what we could actually do is improve the workflow by making a single step. Mm. We originally envisioned actually dividing it into multiple steps where um, the patient or the physician would do the contouring and then approve them and then do the plan and then approve the plan. But the truth of the matter is, is the contour edits that the physicians do in real life are kind of, um, they make them look more like their own fingerprint of, of a case, but they don't actually change the outcome for the patients or the plan. So we're hoping to be able to do it in a single step. The contouring and the planning mm-hmm. in 30 yeah. minutes. That's our hope. That's wow. That yeah. reminds me of like Spider-Man, you know, like your pizza in 30 yeah. minutes or less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Otherwise exactly. it's yeah. Wow. So before yeah. this would have taken hours plus days, possibly, you know. Yeah. Most places between the time most places have workflow in um kind of timelines intrinsic to their setup so that when patients start 
are told that they need radiation, they can plan accordingly and we can reserve space on the machines for them. And typically the minimum for most places between simulation and the start of therapy is usually um, at least three and usually closer to six to 10 days. So again, that is sort of a generous um, attempt to allow everyone to have the space and time to do their highest quality work. Um, because if we plan it more quickly than that, people could take shortcuts or we could settle for a non-optimal plan. Um, but most places have a timeline that involves multiple days. Um, and some places, especially places with low resource settings, that timeline could be a month or two. And that's really concerning because that gives the chance for the patient to have a tumor grow or in centers or locations and countries where patients come in and spend several days getting to the center in order to get treatment. If it's not gonna happen soon enough that they can stay and they go home, there's a, um, always a question about whether or not they're gonna have the resources to come back to start mm. their therapy. Wow. In, in this development, um, I'm curious in you know human versus the model, have you guys done comparisons um, and what have those results look like? Yeah, so in terms of the outlining and contouring of normal tissues and targets, um, honestly, the most are acceptable. Um, very few are identical to exactly what someone would do because unless you build a model based on a specific physician, you're going to get some um, just sort of opinion stylistic differences. But by far and away, well over 80, typically over 90% of them are considered to be clinically acceptable. So I may do something different as you, as my future partner, but I think your way is fine, you know, um, and uh, totally acceptable would pass the boards to not risk the, the um, treatment or the risk of cancer control. So by far and away, 80 to 90% of them are just completely clinically acceptable. What we wanna do is be able to flag the ones that aren't and see if we can find reasons that they're not or any ways to predict those and we're pretty good at those. In terms of the plans, similarly, we actually did a study where we blinded physicians as to which plans they were looking at. And they found overall that um, they accepted the RPA-based auto plans just as much, if not more, as the plans that were actually delivered in clinic. So they're very reproducible, they're very high quality. And one of the things we've created in the system is that they're always safe. So um, actually the biggest changes we see are that individual physicians will be willing to take more risk than the system will. So if I have an advanced cancer and I've spoken to the patient that the cancer is near the eye and that if I fully treat the cancer, there's a chance of blindness in that eye, that's a, a conversation that I can have with a patient that I can document in a medical record and that I can accept a plan that is consistent with. But for an auto plan that you get from a computer that you've never seen before and don't know who's behind, we don't feel comfortable providing that plan with that risk to another center or to a patient. So if anything, the RPA-based plans have less risk than the clinical plans because we feel like they have to be safe um, and that if individual physicians in partnership with their patients decide to take greater risks, that's a, a, 
an iteration or a change in the plan that they can make on their own, but not one that we can um, recommend from an automated system. I'm curious, was the model trained based off of data from MD Anderson or, or where, uh, if you guys are allowed to kind of stay, say where the data- So a lot of it was from MD Anderson initially. Um, we now have, but MD Anderson has um, both the main campus and multiple satellites. So we were able to integrate them from different locations. Now um, it's actually been trained on a larger variety and we have partnerships with other places. Um, so we definitely feel like we have to integrate data from other um, institutions and other international collaborators in order that it's meaningful and tested. So we have data from multiple sites in the United States and internationally as well, um, because I think that it's really important to do that. And one of the nice things about the machine learning approaches is that you don't need a thousand cases necessarily to train. You can actually train based on a small subset, sort of expand up your set and then test based on that. So um, so we've definitely integrated a more diverse group for training in all of our sites. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, I'm wondering, is it currently used in clinical practice? So we're not using it clinically right now. So while our interest really is um, in improving the availability and quality of radiation globally, we feel like the conversations are going to be easier to have if it is FDA approved in the United States. And so um, really it's, um, an, uh, it is um, pretty much an AI interface that lives on top of a commercially available program. So we've applied for um, FDA approval and or have been in that process for a while, but we're not currently using it for clinical treatment as such um, to do that. Um, we can use pieces of it because um, as a radiation oncology student, as radiation oncology trainee, oftentimes we'll have um, people do a set of contours that then come to me as the um, attending physician who is clinically responsible for a patient and I edit them. And in a similar way, um, you know, if, a, if an automated system provides that initial set, I have to edit them and do that. So in some centers where we're doing some initial um, contouring with it just as a base, which again needs to be fully edited and approved by the faculty, but just like a training contour, um, it will come to us for approval. Mm. But the end-to-end -end system we don't yet have running and we're waiting for the um, decisions from the FDA for that. And not, it's not running in other countries yet either, right? No, for the same reason. And so okay. we just feel like it will be more robust if we have the approval here for it um, in order to mm -hmm. make certain that they feel safe with, with regard to those safeguards. What's that process been like? It's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> it's a lot of paperwork. And, you know, as we started out, radiation oncology isn't the most well-known um, field. So trying to create documentation about what is safe and what isn't safe and how many safeguards there will be in place is really important because what we don't want is for patients to pretty much take it at face value. Um, sorry, uh, physicians to take it at face value and let it overrule their own clinical judgment um, because it's easy. And so I think that's one thing that we wanted to make certain that we create some safeguards in the system so that you can't upload 
something, um, download it, immediately treat a patient without ever looking at it. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually require it to be exported into your local system and recalculated so that all of the data would still exist in your own local um, uh, record and verify treatment-based system and that you would sort of be forced to look at it and approve it rather than just take it for face at face value um, without doing due diligence for, for each individual patient's plan. I'm curious, what has been the response like among physicians to the RPA? Everybody wants it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think that everyone wants access to it um, in terms of improving efficiency. Um, and um, so I think there's been a lot of interest in, clini in clinical applications for it, both here and internationally. Um, I do think that there is um, kind of ongoing questions about how it would Im influence the workforce. You know, I, I think that radiation oncology has been moving towards more um, specific uses of radiation. There are definitely things that we have um, decided radiation isn't beneficial for in terms of specific cancer types um, that we can, instead of doing five weeks of radiation, we could do one, those kind of things. I think those are all really good initiatives. I, I think that radiation is a powerful tool to cure cancer, but it also does have side effects and you want to use it when it's effective and when it provides benefit and not overuse it or use it when it doesn't. Um, so I think there's some ongoing kind of concerns about the workforce um, and whether or not radiation oncology um, is gonna continue to be a specialty um, that, that is utilized um, widely in cancer. And I think it will be. Um, and then if this makes things a lot easier, um, how does that influence mm -hmm. um, the role of the physician? From my perspective, um, my, my biggest role as a physician treating cancer patients is deciding who needs treatment, when, how much treatment they need, um, and the planning process is something that I would like to make as efficient as possible because it allows me to be a better doctor with patients and provide supportive care and, um, and counseling and support to them. And so if we could make this bit of it um, more efficient, that will improve the quality of care, um, not eliminate the need for me or for other physicians to, to work. How do physicists and uh, non-physicians in the radiation oncology uh, workforce, how do they feel about it? I think it's sort of a similar concern about whether or not it would necessarily reduce their, their usefulness. I don't think it will. Definitely in low and middle income countries, the biggest issue is shortages in trained staff mostly radiation therapists, dosimetrists, and physicists, even more so than physicians. And so we're just trying to help the ones that exist do a more efficient job, but because we have um, profound shortages. Um, and so definitely we're not going to eliminate the need for them there. Here, I think that while we still do a good job with the RPA, it's not 100% of plans. Um, and plans still need recalculation, they still need quality assurance, all of those things. So it definitely takes a big step out, but allows then the trained dosimetrists and physicists to spend time on other initiatives, on the more complicated plans, on the quality assurance, on the linear accelerator maintenance, and on method development in order to make this field better. Um, so if anything, my hope is that it would free up some of their 
um, kind of some of their time to do um, more creative and more practice changing things, um, but definitely would not, I don't foresee a time or a place that it would eliminate the need for them or reduce the numbers that we need. That's a great point. And finally, I'm wondering what has been the response among patients? Um, patient, the thing is, is this entire process is a little opaque to patients. So I go through kind of what's happening and well, why, if you're seeing me today and doing my simulation tomorrow, can't I start for a week? And, um, and, you know, I think a lot of them don't quite understand what's going on behind the scenes. I don't think most of the other providers do too. Like, I don't think the surgeons know what goes on down here or the medical oncologist and why it takes that <laughs> amount of time. So I think if, as long as they're assured that they're going to get a high quality plan, kind of the way that that is made in the basement doesn't really matter to them. And ultimately, again, I need to sign off on the plan as the physician mm -hmm. for that patient. So however it was birthed um, doesn't really matter as long as it's high quality. And I think that kind of the machine learning approaches to this are going to make more high quality plans and more consistent plans because there's going to be less um, uh, user opportunity to make things better or worse and less time pressure that if a patient starts tomorrow because there were a bunch of emergencies earlier in the week, this is the first iteration of the plan. It looks fine. We should move forward, um, but would not necessarily be the plan if the patient was starting in another week. I think all of those issues are going to be reduced by the fact that we can get a high quality plan out, out um, initially that is um, much more efficient and much easier um, on the staff in order to, in order to, um, to go forward. How many years away do you think we are from clinically implementing it? We're hoping within a year. Wow, so, within a year. Um, really, we're hoping to have, yeah, well, we're, we've said, yeah, we're hoping to have approvals by the end of this year, but in, in actual world, probably, you know, end of 2022, beginning of 2023. So, that's so exciting. That's our plan. We hope. Wow. Yeah. And so once it's approved, um, Will you guys start to roll it out, you know, in the U.S., worldwide? Uh, I mean, our passion is really in global health, um, and we think that that's the opportunity for this to really make a difference, and that's what we want. Um, both Dr. Court and I made a commitment to each other and to the project at the beginning that we, um, we're not, we don't really want to sell things, um, mm -hmm. uh, and so... We want to make it accessible to patients and clinics that don't have the resources to do this work and really try to change um, the outcomes for their patients. So definitely our passion is in low and middle income countries, um, and that's our first priority. Wow, that's very inspiring. Wow. And when did this begin? What year? Oh, goodness. Um 20 about 2013 2014 I guess wow. I think our first trip to Africa was in 2014 um to go and I think the biggest thing um for our international collaborations is really um listening mm -hmm. um and I really try to listen more than I speak um because understanding what the challenges are there is the only way that we can move forward and us going and deciding what they what other clinics need or what the fixes are um, are not helpful so um, so we really started with a lot of listening and establishing those relationships which are still ongoing 
Wow. So nearly 10 years in the making now. Yeah. Hard to believe time. Yeah. Which countries have you been able to visit in the process? Um, Our closest collaborations are in South Africa at the University of Stellenbosch and University of Cape Town. Um, And we have great um, collaborators there also at um, the University of the Free State in Bloemfontein. Um, All of them have different um, sort of uh, interests and orientations. We also have um, collaborators in Zambia, Tanzania. Um, uh, we have interest in Ghana. We have a lot of places that sort of are waiting for it to be deployed. We do have to go through regulatory things in each of the countries. And so until it's up and running and we kind of um, really test it, um, we're limiting kind of who we're promising what, um, because it does take an investment to make certain that it's fully vetted in each of the countries individually. Um, and one of the reasons we started in South Africa is because there are multiple centers to test it. So we can test in different environments um, with dif- different patient populations. Um, but we're hoping after approval that we can go in um, to, to more countries than that. And I think Tanzania is our next. Wow. Just curious, have have people done outcome studies yet of kind of comparing physician alone versus um, RPA? The, we haven't done them specifically for RPA in terms of outcomes. Um, one of the issues is, is that, again, um, since most of this has been retrospective, so we take previously treated patients um, who have clinical uh, plans that their physician has approved and have been delivered and we run the RPA process on top of those. Um, Retrospective data is not great in terms of outcomes um, and and, um, in terms of capturing things. So we we haven't looked in terms of outcomes, especially with regard to quality of life and those kind of things that are really important. I definitely think that we'll be able to see some, I think, especially in low and middle income countries and for patients with more extensive cancers at presentation, oftentimes if we don't have advanced technologies, we have to reduce the dose just because we can't get in a curative dose due to the uh, limitations in the planning or limitations um, to try to protect normal structures. So I think the integration of the RPA will allow us to do more advanced techniques, which hopefully will allow us to do higher doses um, and more curative therapy in these. But um, ultimately we hope to study that as it moves forward. Do you envision a day where maybe not even just in a, you know, kind of radiation oncology as a whole, do you think, because right now there's a six to seven, six to 10 day waiting period between the Mm -hmm. simulation and then the treatment. Um, Do you ever think, uh, do you envision, do you, maybe it'll become kind of like almost the same day? Would you get simulation and treatment in the same day? I definitely think it would be very helpful, especially for um, patients that come from afar in order to make it within a day or two, we always need to quality assure that plan. And I think that sort of a fresh set of eyes is important. So in the same way, when I write something or I do a plan, I usually leave it till the next morning to just have another, just have a fresh day's look at it. Um, But I think there's a difference between six or 10 days and the next day. So I definitely think we could imagine that if patients came in from afar, that they would come in have their simulation and treatment planning on one day and start therapy the next. And I think that would give us an opportunity to 
not lose patients who go home and don't have the funds to come back, um, limit the expense of transportation for them, limit the opportunity for the cancer to grow before we start, um, all of those things. I still do think that you know a little bit of time is important in terms of from diagnosis to start of treatment. I think when patients are truly expedited, um, you know, um, they lose a little bit of their ability to think through the side effects, think through the decisions that they're making, think through um, the expectations of treatment. So in no way do I think a lot of time is important, but I definitely think that for patients who are sort of fast tracked in terms of things, oftentimes they question the decisions they made during those times. And I think it's really important to give them a little bit of pause in order to think through questions, talk to their families and make a truly um, voluntary decision to move forward rather than just be put on a conveyor belt that now you're, you know, and moved really quickly through things. So I definitely think that we can do better um, than we do. And especially for patients from afar, I think we could envision a you come, you do your simulation, you start the next day, you go through your treatment um, all in, in one one kind of coordinated visit. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also kind of a basic question, but uh, I do know that sometimes radiation treatments can take four to five weeks. Mm -hmm. um, patients will get them you know, across four to five weeks coming in every day or five days a week. And um, I, I actually don't know the answer to this. I was wondering, do, because you know, in five weeks, I'm sure things probably change in size or maybe change on yeah. where they are in the body. And um, currently, do we change our treatment contours or our plans according to those treatment or those changes? Or do we kind of treat according to the initial thing five weeks ago? So that's one of the things that's actually an ongoing area of research in the field. So it's called adaptive planning. So for most patients um, with cancer. So we create the plan based on that initial CT simulation, and then they get radiation treatment to those targets Monday through Friday for somewhere between two and seven weeks for head and neck cancer. It's typically six to seven. And at, during that time, the tumor can shrink, their normal tissues can change shape, those kind of things. So there's an interest in doing adaptive planning where they would redo a scan and then do another plan. And ideally you could do that daily um, to sort of optimize that. The issue, be, and the RPA could help with that by, by really um, expediting that process. The issue becomes that if you have a tumor that's five centimeters in size and it shrinks down to three centimeters, it's, you can't ensure that there's not single microscopic cells still left mm. at that five centimeter um, mm. original extent. And so there's definitely a concern about getting too cute about kind of continually shrinking it um, and then giving less dose to areas that could harbor microscopic disease for that. Now for cases where in the space of the five centimeters to three centimeters, something critical like the brainstem or the optic structures or something came into that, you definitely wanna take that into account. If it's soft tissue or air, it's probably less important, but definitely there's a move to doing more adaptive planning, being able to adjust the daily radiation for the patient's anatomy that day and for what their tumor looks like. Mm. Uh, and I'm curious, what, are, what do you think the future of the RPA will be in maybe five to 10 years? What do you envision for it? My hope is that this whole process is just easier for everyone. So I hope that when you're in clinical practice, um, the amount of time that you spend on 
kind of the contouring and planning bit is a lot less stressful and a lot more efficient for you and for your patients. Um, and I definitely think that there are a lot of, you know, there's just no reason that it needs to be as hard as it is right now. Um, the blessing and the curse about the advanced technologies that we've integrated is that treatments have gotten a lot better, but the physician and physics and dosimetry investment in, of time has gotten huge. When we were doing clinical treatments in the 70s and 80s based on um, x-rays or CT scans, people would take an x-ray and a wax pencil and they would delineate where the cancer um, was in their field and they would move, walk away at the time of that treatment planning session and everything would effectively be done. And now we have hours and days worth of planning mm. to do the same thing, you know, that we had done in that time. So I definitely think that we've made more um, requisite time investments in this process. Um, and we, and it's a good thing. Patients have better outcomes. We can do more than we could, but I think we should now use the computer to make it more efficient so that doctors can be doctors to their patients and not sit at a computer as long to do things that the computer could do it on its own just as well. I like that a lot. That gives me hope for the future. Yes. Yeah. By the time I'm, you're in practice. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, do you have any other projects in the pipeline with your collaborator? Um, yeah, actually, Lawrence and I have a lot of ideas, um, you know, kind of using similar approaches. One is that another area where um, we, we wish there was more standardization than we have is in clinical trials. So when we do clinical trials involving radiation, they'll have a 140 page document on how to treat patients. And you have to go through line by line and say, well, this patient had this. So per the trial, I'm going to do that. And what they've shown is that people are differently good at following those directions and for, and patients who are treated on a protocol where there's a violation in those recommendations have worse outcomes um, than that. So if you follow the protocol, um, you tend to have a better outcome than if you don't follow the protocol and that depends on your doctor and their decisions to follow that. So we would like to use the system to actually see if we could just plan for clinical protocols based on the RPA, which would again standardize it. So if we could teach the RPA a specific protocol, which would be different from a different protocol, um, then we could quality assure in real time the plans that the treating physicians wanna do and make certain that they are compliant. And if they're not, give them a quick solution to how to make them compliant. So to try to minimize the negative uh, um, impact of not following the protocol. So that's one. Um, another one that we're interested in is, is we think that this would be a great way to teach trainees how to contour oh, yeah. so that you could um, and do kind of interactive learning that ultimately um, one of the other concerns about it is that how are you as a future radiation oncology trainee going to learn how to do this if you press a button and the computer does it for you. Um, but I really think that the um, the whole system could be interactive and teach you how to do it and hence flag um, when something isn't done correctly. So I think there's a huge opportunity to improve education with it as well. Mm. Uh, now for some more kind of general questions. Uh -huh. uh, I'm wondering how has mentorship shaped your path? Um, I think that everybody um, depends on mentorship um, along the way. I've had a great group of um, friends and faculty and collaborators that have really made a difference in my career. 
Um, my career and my academics are a little strange. So I think I summarize them as saying that I do cool things with cool people. And again, I didn't really foresee that Lawrence and I would be doing this almost 10 years later, as you pointed out. Um, but he and I work really well together and we share a passion for this. Um, and so I think that that's really important. Um, I had a great group of mentors at MD Anderson when I was a junior faculty, including Wendy Woodward and Ashley Guadagnolo, um, uh, uh, Bruce Minsky, among others, Tom Buckholz, Kim Cox, Frisco Kamaki who all really saw as their legacy, giving younger people an, uh, an opportunity. And so um, I think it's really important to have mentors and sponsors who say, I got invited to do this, why don't you do it? Um, and I really think that giving back and, and allowing people the opportunity is important. Um, uh, Wendy Wordward, who's a radiation oncologist in B. Anderson once said to me, you know, I know that no one expects to be flown to the top of the mountain, but someone needs to throw you a rope down so you can climb up on your own. And I think that that's a really great analogy of what we need to do in the field and in medicine in general, is just give people opportunities to work hard and to thrive. And I think most people will take those opportunities and really just astound you with what, what they do when given those, those chances. I'm curious, what did you mean by weird? You, you described your, your path as a little weird or? <laughs> I just, you know, I've done some basic science stuff. I had a grant to look at home monitoring devices for patients um, who are undergoing radiation to be monitored at home. You know, I definitely didn't take a linear path to all of this. Um, I think that my background in science has affected my choices and ultimately collaborating with interesting people that I feel share a passion and share um, kind of a commitment to patient care is important. Um, I think sometimes you'll find people who want to affect patient care who aren't involved in patient care. And again, um, if you don't listen to people who actually have to walk the walk and, and, and do what you're asking them to do is a challenge. I think there's a lot of machine learning algorithms that are created in industry that are excellent, but they're hard to use. And if something that's supposed to make my life easier makes it harder, I'm not gonna try it again. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. um, so I think that that user interface matters a lot. I think user engagement, user um, input really matters at the beginning um, and then throughout the process. Cause if you make something that makes work harder, no matter how much you tell people it makes it easier, they're not gonna believe you and they're gonna stop using it. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Uh, that does bring me to my next question, which is one of our closing questions that we ask all guests. Uh, what yeah. do you think the future of AI and medicine will look like in 10 to 20 years? Uh, and also, uh, how about AI and Radonc as well? Um, so medicine and then Radonc. Gonna, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to look back and, and say, you know, oh, you could only use the phone if you were at home? Weird. You know, I think that it's, I think there's such an opportunity to make things more efficient, more streamlined and easier through the um, really careful integration of machine learning and AI that we're going to just take for granted how easy some things are that we all do by hand right now um, in the same way that 
all of us take for granted that we can be contacted at any moment of any day, wherever we are in the world. When, you know, 20 years ago, you had to be at home sitting by the phone in order to talk to someone who was calling you or call at a specific time to save money or something like that. So I definitely think that all of those things are going to get a lot easier. And kind of similarly in radiation oncology, I think there are a lot of manual steps that we do that are going to end up being automated and sort of invisible to us that we're going to take for granted as just what happens that right now takes effort and takes time. So I think it's a really, um, really fun and exciting time to be in the field. Mm. Uh what advice would you give to yourself when you were just finishing medical school? I think I would tell myself, and I still try to tell myself this in the moment, is that all of the decisions that seem so overwhelming and important are probably neither um, that overwhelming or that important. And um, most of the, yeah, I mean, most of the decisions that you make, you're gonna be fine regardless of what you make. So when you make your match list, no matter how much you struggle with it, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna, you know, uh, and job searches and taking a position or not taking a position or deciding to write an editorial or not, all of the things that you worry about and, and seem like such overwhelming decisions at the time when you look back on, probably either answer would have been just fine and moved on and, uh, and you'd probably just be fine regardless. So I try to show myself that same grace now, and I don't think I'm very good with it in the moment. (laughs) I'm much better at it once those decisions. Does that apply to relationships too? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) I mean, I think it is. I think that, again, I think that, I mean, every experience affects who you are and those kind of things. And kind of, again, taking things with a little more grain of salt probably, probably is a good thing. Mm. Uh, And these are my last three questions that I I like to ask. I actually picked these up from a a doc that I was working with a couple of years ago that he would ask his patients. I really like this. Um, Three questions are one, what brings you joy? Two, what gives your life meaning? And three, what are your greatest fears? Um, Feel free to answer in any order or not answer them at all. <laughs> it's optional. So, um, what brings me joy? I really do love traveling, um, and that's been hard in the last couple of years. So I'm just finally getting back out and traveling again. And I think seeing new places and new people and experiencing kind of um, the beauty of different cultures um, really, really kind of brings everything home um, and makes me very, very happy. Um, what gives my life meaning? Honestly, my patients, my happiest days are the ones where I'm in clinic and just get to visit with them. Um, the treatment that I give them is, is really challenging for them. I meet people at one of the most stressful times in their lives. And, um, and then I make them feel worse um, for some portion of time. Um, and so seeing them kind of get through that and follow up and go on to do different things and get back to traveling, get on and I have a patient who celebrated their 48th wedding anniversary yesterday, um, really is um, how I get meaning for my life is to be able to give, um, give those opportunities for them in the small way that I can. Uh, what are my greatest fears? Um, I don't fear a lot of things. Um, yeah, there's an old J.D. Salinger quote that says something like every lightning bolt either has your name on it or it doesn't. <laughs> um, so I, don't, 
live with a lot of fear. Um, That's funny. I, I try to, you know, I'm sort of kind of believe that things work out the way they're supposed to one way or another. So, mm. uh, so. last, last question. Um, what yeah. was your favorite country to visit or do you have like a favorite travel spot? Um, I have a couple, um, internationally, one of the joys of this project is I love South Africa. Um, and so the opportunity to go back there is great. Um, I feel like it just has a remarkable history and the, the people and, um, and it's complex, it's a complex history, um, but it's a really wonderful place um, to, and I think we have a lot of opportunity there. And then um, actually for my dad's 75th birthday, I promised to take him to see the Northern Lights and that was supposed oh, wow. to be Greenland, um, but that got canceled due to COVID multiple times. Oh, I'm sorry. So I found a lodge at Inyakuk Lake in Northern Alaska, 200 miles north of Fairbanks. And we went in March and you're the only people there with the innkeeper. And every night we went out and saw the Northern Lights and every day we went dog sledding with some amazing Alaskan sled dogs. And oh, that's so cool. All you hear is the wind. Um, and it was a really amazing place to visit. Um, that's beautiful. Yeah, what, what was it called fun. again? It's called Inyakuk Lake. Inyakuk so Lake, okay, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, wow. it's, absolutely, it's great. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Beadle, for coming on our show today. Uh, really appreciated having you. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, and I hope that other people get excited about this field too. Great. Thank you. <laughs>